And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down this week with Ken Burns, the great documentarian whose latest work, a four-part biography of Muhammad Ali, premieres Sunday on PBS. From war to social upheaval, baseball to jazz, no one has brought American history to the screen more powerfully or compellingly over the past four decades than Ken Burns. In this conversation, we talked about stories, America's and his own. Ken Burns, it's always so good to see you. Thank you for doing this. And I don't have to explain anybody that you're one of America's great storytellers, and that's going to be reflected again in this four-part series on Muhammad Ali. That'll begin airing on the 19th on PBS, and we'll talk a lot more about that later. But, you know, one of the things that you're so gifted at is drawing the through lines in people's lives and talking about the formative things that happened in their lives that led them to the destinations. And so, you got to help me out here because I want to find out about Ken Burns and uh, your own journey. And one of the things that struck me in, in just reading the research was that it wasn't that easy a ride, <laughs> that your early life was really filled with sadness and challenge. Tell me about your folks. Yeah, my father was a cultural anthropologist uh, who probably suffered from bipolar um, my mother was a biology major and who uh, developed cancer uh, when I was two or three years old, breast cancer, and it eventually killed her after a really valiant struggle in 1965, just a couple months short of my 12th birthday when I was 11. It is the defining moment of my life without a doubt. And also my father's kind of inability in a direct way to parent or help. We muddled along as best we could. Uh, you, you and your brother. My brother, my younger brother, Rick, who is also a superb documentary filmmaker. My seminal experience is my dad was an amateur still photographer. My first memory is of him building a dark room in the basement of our tract house in Newark, Delaware, where he was the only anthropologist in the entire state of Delaware at the university there. And then we moved when I was 10, just before my mother's death, to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he is one of 40 anthropologists in a department, a very celebrated anthropology department that had been uh, the first. Uh, the sponsors of the first teach-in against the Vietnam War in March of 65. When my mom died, my father had a pretty strict curfew for my, for Rick and me, and, and yet he let me stay up late on nights watching old movies on TV with him or going out to the Cinema Guild, part of the university's uh, program or the campus theater, a, a, a sort of uh, art house cinema, and uh, on a school night. And, you know, I'd stay up till 1 a.m. sometimes with all the popeal commercials. And <laughs> um, and my I watched my dad cry. We were watching Sir Carol Reed's Odd Man Out about the Irish yeah. James Mason. And he cried. He didn't cry when my mom was sick. Didn't cry when she died. Didn't cry at the funeral. Uh, something not lost on my friends who, who, by mentioning it, implied a kind of thing. And and I realized right then and there I needed to be a filmmaker. That meant being Alfred Hitchcock. That That film had provided him with a safe haven you know, yeah. had provided him with an emotional, a place where he felt emotionally safe and could express something. And so I just thought, I want to do that. Yeah. Terribly tragic film. 
it's a terribly tragic film. And so Thelma and Louise ending and it's, it's tough. And, and he cried. And, and so I said, I'm going to be a filmmaker. And that meant Howard Hawks or, or Alfred Hitchcock. Let's back up a second though. Just first of all, about your mom. Yeah. I know that you've said that a lot of your recollections as a kid were watching your mom come back from the hospital, just all her, her struggles to try and, um, defeat this. Uh, how, how much time did she have for you and your brother? How much time were you separated because of this illness? And w- when the end came, you were a, a kid. How did you process all of that? You know, I don't know. I think it sometimes it was a third or a half where she was gone when she was back, no matter how much pain. I can remember her walking up the stairs and shortness of breath and taking out a flask of, of, of whiskey or something or whatever it was to catch her breath and just being amazed, even at that young age, at her courage. You know, we were told when I was seven, so Rick was five and a half or, or, or six, that, um, she was going to die in six months. And she pulled me aside and said, that's what they say, but I'm going to stay until junior high school. And I thought, well, you know, that's junior high is like way far away, seventh grade. She missed it by just a couple of months. And she was that kind of person. And people we met after she died would just say how amazing she was. The interesting thing is the day she died, um, it has to do a lot with my dad. I mean, we, we weren't there. Uh, he, we found out the next morning. Hmm. Um, and then it's all a dreamy thing. Like there was a funeral. I didn't realize that she was in the box in front. And uh, then there was a cremation and we never got the ashes. My father just disconnected. And it took mm-hmm. till a crisis I was having at age 39 or 40 for my brother and I. Now, I really, I, I told a therapist uh, or, or she told me, she said, you, you think she's coming back. And I knew she meant my mom. And uh, I was going through a painful divorce. So it could have been, you know, the the ex-wife and 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 he said she said when did she die and i said april 28th she goes what do you do on that day and i said i keep seeing it coming and i keep seeing it receding and i went back to my father-in-law who was uh, my late father-in-law who was uh, then an eminent psychologist and he i he said i I seem to be keeping my mama alive and he said well what do you think you do for a living you you wake mm. the dead, you know, he said, I bet you blew out your candles on the birthday party, uh, you know, wishing she'd come back. And I go, how did you know? She says, you missed the date. This is what you do. This is what you do for a living. You make Abraham Lincoln and Jackie Robinson and Louis Armstrong come alive. Who do you think you're really trying to wake up? And yeah. I think, thankfully as dime store psychology as that sound, it's coming from an eminent psychologist. So it's not dime store. No, um, it makes, it makes perfect sense. And I, I would not be here, David, without her death. I would not be here. It is something that is with me every single day. And what my brother and I did is we went back to find her ashes. We just found them. They'd been buried in a pauper's grave 20 miles outside of of Ann Arbor. We put a plaque there. We went every year until I didn't need to go and took my young daughters who are now grown up. My mother's name was Lila. And the great ending of this part of of your personal and but very important question and central question is that her name was Lila, L-Y-L-A, but it was a name no one ever said. In fact, my brother and I, we're in our late 60s. We say mommy because that's who she was when she left. We talk about our father as our dad or father or whatever. And her name is draped in black crepe. And on, on January 18th, 2011, my daughter gave birth to her first child, a daughter, and named her after a woman she had never met. And now we say the name, you know, 50 times a day and birds chirp and, and flowers grow. Yeah. And there's a, a sense of just 
being able to continue. And in fact, that woman, that mother is the co-director with her husband, the father, David McMahon, Sarah Burns and David McMahon of this Muhammad Ali film. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Given the fact that you got to spend so little time with your own parents, because your father was sort of absent even when he was yeah. there, what does it mean to you to to work with your with your daughter on a, a project, uh, not just a project, but you've worked with yes. her on several projects. Central Park Five, Jackie Robinson. Yes. I executive produced a wonderful film they did called East Lake Meadows, a, a public housing story. We're working on a film on Leonardo da Vinci and a history of sort of another black great life. American. Another great American, the only non-American topic we've done. We're doing a big series called Emancipation to Exodus, exactly what you would imagine from the uh, issuing of the Emancipation Proclamation through Reconstruction, through its collapse, through the decades after Plessy versus Ferguson to the beginning of the Great Migration at the end of the First World War of African-Americans out of the Deep South, out of the Jim Crow South, yeah. out of former Confederacy into, as Langston Hughes said, and Elizabeth Wilkerson took for a wonderful book, The Warmth of Other Suns. Um, so that, you know, we've got a lot of things we're doing. But, you know, my first job has been a father. I've got four daughters now from two marriages and, and I, they're my most important job. And I've, I've tried to do all the things that weren't done for me. And I'm sure I've failed in lots of ways, but I still put father ahead of filmmaker. And so to have this girl that used to in her diapers be going underneath the editing table when we were working on our second film, The Shakers, and her mom was the editor to now where She's, you know, I turned to her and I said, what should we do here? And she knows the better way to, to do that's it. So, uh, that's so gratifying. That's so, so great. Oh, great. You know, I think about your mom and, you know, I, I, I have a child who, who's had all kinds of problems. No, and, and I learned from that the power of a mother's love. Yes. And what could be more powerful than trying to keep yourself alive? Yes. For her kids. For your kids, yeah. You know, I came across a letter that she had written to my, my father's mother, who she was very, very close to, saying, I'm dying. Who's going to take care of my boys? Bobby can't. My father can't. And he did. You know, he, we muddled through. My dad was the smartest person I've ever met, as smart a person, but just like a ma my brother called him a Mazeroski with the, without a clutch, meaning it sits in the driveway, it revs, it shows great promise, and actually can't get into gear. And, you know, it's in, in the world of academia, you know, the expression publish or perish. He perished and ended up in a, you know, going downhill from different universities. But he was a really great man. He tried hard uh, with the tools he had. And my brother and I didn't become juvenile delinquents and we didn't not get fed and we didn't, we made it. And, uh, and so I don't want to in any way dishonor him by his, you know, that she appears as a hero, you know. He is also equally struggling with whatever his demons were, a hero in our book and just, but very, very problematic for Rick and me. Yeah, no, I lost a dad to suicide. And I mean, mental illness, it's brutal and it's real and it's not a defect of character. And we, we have to recognize it as such. You know, um, how many films have you done in all? I, you know, I don't know people. I think it's around 35 or 36. Someone told me it was over 40. Someone said it was under 30. And and somebody did a count. And it's one of those things where I can count them up and I, then I forget the number immediately, you know, like the telephone number the guy just gave me. One of the things that interested me is, you know, I'm a huge sports fan. I'm a sports fan in part because my father was a huge sports fan and we spent every weekend at the ballpark. He was an immigrant, learned, how, came to the Bronx learned how to play baseball before he learned, I think, how to speak English. And, you know, this was a big bond 
between us. You did this seminal piece on baseball and the history of baseball. And you've done these other, you did the Jackie Robinson piece, you've done this. And while I know that you're Jack Johnson, these are in some ways studies of really significant social institutions and, and, and social figures. There's also an obvious kind of affection for and attachment to sports. And I, this is the last question because I want—I I need to move on and we got to get to the champ. But uh, was that something that you shared with your dad or how did you become a big sports fan? It's so interesting, David. It's the kind of opposite of the thing. And, and obviously your relationship with your father continues through your love of the game of baseball. Absolutely. And you keep him alive and you wake the dead through that. I go to the ballpark. Can I go to the ballpark with my sons? And now I have grandchildren. I go to the ballpark with my sons. And I feel like my dad is sitting of there course. with us. That, that's the know? only game that does that. It's the only yeah. game that does that. And that's the thing you just described in your story, the entire theme of the baseball thing. Yes, yeah. it's important about Jackie Robinson, who is the first real progress in civil rights in a broad national sense since the Civil War. I used to say the baseball series was a sequel to the Civil War. But it's an emotional archaeology I've always been after. It is waking the dead. And it is about what happens in the transfer of information from person to person, from tragedy to tragedy. And baseball is um, alone among the sports. People say, well, you know, I was at this game and Michael Jordan hit the three-pointer at the, at, yeah. the, at the buzzer and we won. Or Joe Montana threw the thing to Jerry Rice it just did, and we came from behind and we won. But baseball says, my mom took me to the game. Or I my know. Dad took me. And it's all who you see it with. That's it's incredibly. Well, incredible. the, other, the but, other thing about baseball is, and I have this argument with my wife, Susan, all the time because she's a big, she's a sports fan, but not a baseball fan because she's too slow. And I always say the same thing. You know, you go to a hockey game, you go to a football game, you go to a basketball game. When you go to a baseball game, you say, I'm going to the ballpark. Yes, exactly. And send her to me if you need some help. I, I can. <laughs> you probably tried everything. But baseball to me, because of my mom's illness and my dad's distraction, I probably had three catches in the backyard with him. I've tried to have as many with my daughters as they and whenever they ask. And so when I went to baseball and fell in love with it, it was a refuge from what was going on in my family. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, 100%. I developed all the love and affection for it, and I've now recapitulated it in legitimate way with two sequences, two waves of of girls, and um, love it in that way, in the same way that you describe it. it. It's as emotional as anything. In fact, if you look at the last episode of, of the baseball series, you'll see some kids playing baseball all around the country, a Mescalero, Apaches in New Mexico and whatever, but there's some gals from Walpole, including my daughter on second base. I cannot watch that without weeping, though I <laughs> shot the footage, and it's, you know, I've seen it a thousand times, uh, yeah, just because what- of that generational connection. But me, it was my escape. I come yeah. back. How to go? Okay, you know, I did this or I did this. I stole a couple of bases. I got a hit. Whatever it was. Yeah, you also were there at a pretty propitious time to be a probably a Detroit Tigers fan, right? I was. You know what? That was my until the Red Sox flipping won the World Series in two thousand and four because I moved to New England to go to college in seventy one. Yes. I had had only one World Series victory of a local team. 1968, huh? 68 with the Tigers. And I yeah. can remember that team and Gates Brown and Denny McLean and yeah. Lolich. Mickey Lolich, yeah. Norm Cash. I mean, the whole thing, it was just, you know, McAuliffe. It was just wonderful team. And then, you know, I had to, I then adopted, you know, I bonded like a chick 
uh, to the (laughs) Red Sox and then just suffered and suffered and suffered. The only reason why I did my baseball update, the 10th inning, I mean, we covered the strike, we covered steroids, we covered the dominant at Braves and the dominant Yankees was to just cover 2003 and then 2004 with the greatest comeback in the history of sports. Well, you know, I can relate to this because I grew up in New York and I was there for the Miracle Mets in 69. And then I Ouch. Moved to Chicago in '72 to go to college, and then I started bonding to the uh, yeah <laughs> to the to the Chicago with the Chicago teams. And so after Theo Epstein left Boston, uh, after you guys broke the curse, you're there, welcome. Came, came, came here. At, yes, you're thank welcome. you. Broke the curse here. Anyway, and John Lester and yes, uh, yeah, Dick no, no, Ross. you guys helped us out. I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate it. So you uh, you went to Hampshire College. Uh, which was kind of an experimental college in, uh, in in Massachusetts that you're still a great patron. Of. Yeah, you know what? I, I would say that my mother's death and going to Hampshire College are, uh, if, if either of those things hadn't happened, I'd disappear. I don't recognize the person who went in on September 13th, 1971, and the person who came out in the spring of 1975. It just rearranged all my molecules. It was experimental. I had real true mentorships with two documentary still photographers, Elaine Mays and most prominently Jerome Liebling, and they just changed what I am, and they allowed me to move away from the Hollywood model of being John Ford to the idea that there is as much drama in what is and what was, and that at the heart of everything was a single still photograph. And and I, I had an untrained and untutored love of history that suddenly yeah. burst out and everything I've done since. I read uh, that you took exactly one history course in yeah. college and it Russian. was Russian history. Russian. And the first, last time I took American history was 11th grade, you know, where they <laughs> make you take it. I loved it. You know, I loved it, but I didn't know. And if you told me, even after the first subject, which was history and my Brooklyn Bridge film, I'd made another film in college for Old Sturbridge Village, which is the colonial Williamsburg of. Yeah, yeah, I know it well. Yeah. And if you told me that's what you're going to be doing in 50 years, I'd say you're out of your mind. But that's what I'm doing in 50 years. And I love it. And I would if I were given a thousand years to live and I will not, I will never run out of topics in American history, which is why I'm working on so many projects right now like you've got like eight of them going eight of them going and they're all going there's not like on a back burner of development they're all underway we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the axe files and now back to the show As far as I can see, you are one person with a lot of energy, eight projects. Yeah. Eight projects. So how do you tell me how this all works? How many people do you have working with you? How do you? We have about 50 employees at Florentine Films, but it expands and contracts because we take no commercial jobs. Everything is PBS. Everything is grant funded. Every separate project is its own silo, a zero-sum game. We raise it from foundations and individuals and corporations, Bank of America, and who's been there since 2006, General Motors for 22 years before that, and foundations. So that's what it is. And we can't put in profit margin. We can't put in contingencies. We get paid a salary. Boom, done. Right. Um, And I have been able to do that. I now have four different producing strands. An intelligent person would have at most 
too. But but because of that greed, the greediness also for the love of creation, you know, that ability to make a film better is the greatest thing in the yeah. world, even on a daily basis, on a quotidian basis, just saying, well, try this, you know, you should see the way, you know, you how it opens with the yes. with him stealing cornflakes yes. from his daughter, Miriam. That was yes. safely and perfectly embedded in the middle of episode three. You're talking about the Ali film. Yeah, yeah the Ali film. And, and now it's at the beginning because we wanted to say, yeah, yeah, we'll get to the fight stuff. This is a human being. And what what is more human? than a father who knows that every father has stolen food from their kids plate by making them look and well the other the other thing about it was and this comes across so clearly in your film this guy interestingly we talked before about parents i mean this guy combined the sort of warmth and love of his mother and the kind of charisma of his father and exactly. he just was a winning personality he knew early on that he was going someplace it's just an accident of a stolen bike that he's a boxer but we'd know who he is some other way thank god it's a boxer because then it it puts us back on our heels it's such a brutal sport it's also a beautiful sport and for those people who don't like boxing and i'm not a boxing fan you need to know a little bit about it because it is so elemental the ritualized warfare that boxing represents comes as close to actual warfare as there is and in that nexus is a guy who is intersecting with every important theme of the last half of the 20th century which is still resonating yeah. with today the role of sports the role of the black athlete the notions of black masculinity and black manhood the civil rights and its variety war and politics faith and religion and islam and sex i mean there is nothing he didn't touch and all of it is resonating at this moment. And so he becomes, as he was all his life, hugely instructional, hugely inspirational, and just such a model of, I mean, the film is about three things. It's about freedom, which is hard for a black man to achieve. It is about courage, which is hard for all of us to exhibit. And it's about love, which is a word that we banty about or don't want to talk about and move around like peas on our plate. And you know, this guy dies the most popular person on the planet. It Which is ex extraordinary, extraordinary when you think about it, because he was such a controversial yes. figure when he was a, announced himself to be a, a member of the Nation of Islam. I don't want to make too much of this, but his daughter says, you know, boxing was just this much, right? And so she was saying that there was something else, like he could have been something else. He could have been a simple carpenter. And so there's a simple carpenter so divisive in his lifetime that he was killed. Right. right. That had an effect. And I'm not I don't wish to put Jesus Christ and Muhammad Ali on the same platform, but these are both avatars and apostles of love. And there's a great shot. You remember, I'm trying to distract you now from the impossibility of that connection of 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 the Beatles visiting his fist. Yeah, right. I remember that when it happened. And, yeah. and you know, and yeah, me too. And, and, and a, the punch, the fake yeah. punch, and they're all going over like dominoes. But these are five men who understood, three of them are dead, two are alive. But one of them who's still alive said it maybe best, maybe the John Lennon said it the best, love is all you need. But, but, but Paul McCartney said, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. And all five of those men and Muhammad Ali most definitely understood what that meant. And they became, he became an apostle of love that is just so. Yeah, which is extraordinary when you, not just because he was a controversial figure 
Nation of Islam. Uh, he uh, uh, refused induction into the army and, uh, you know, was a conscientious objector to the war, paid a terrible price for that. We'll get we'll get to all of this. But the fact that he was a boxer with all the brutality that goes along with that. And yet uh, you call him an apostle of love, which I accept. It, yeah. It's just one more thing that makes him an extraordinary figure. But you led me away from the process. And I, I want to finish on him. But I have two questions. One is about the process and one is about how you think about these films and how you pitch them. The process itself, how, how much research goes into every one of these films? Like take Ali for, for it's, it's example. It's extraordinary. And the thing is, when you say research, mostly what you're acknowledging is there's a set research period followed by a set writing period, followed by shooting and editing, boom, done. We never stop researching. So thank God to PBS, which means that they've got one foot tentatively in the marketplace, the other proudly out. We can spend 10 and a half years on Vietnam. We can spend seven years on Ali and discover footage that has never been seen even by his children or by the scholars that we work with. And so the research is as deep a dive as you can go. We we in, we invite scholars to come and, and, and invite arguments. And we don't want to say, this is what you should know, we would rather share with you a process of discovery. No test on Tuesday, but let's contain contradiction. Let's understand undertow. You know, I've always said that I've been fortunate enough to make films about the U.S. for nearly 50 years, but I've also made films about us. That is to say the two-letter, lowercase, plural pronoun. All of the intimacy of us and all of the majesty, the complexity, the contradiction, and the controversy of the U.S. And within that space, it's marvelous to be in there, David, because it permits you to just, this is a man, as you see, with glaring faults. He's, he's, a, he's a womanizer. He abandons Malcolm X. He uses the language of a racist, the scholar uh, 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 yeah. Todd Boyd says in our film, uh, of a white racist that would say about a black man about his principal rival, Joe Frazier. Yeah. It's unconscionable. And yet he emerges from this and it is possible because all of us are sinners to emerge from this with this net positive. He's divisive because he's bragging and athletes aren't supposed to do that. Certainly not black athletes. He's joined this cult, as you said, and he's refused you know, induction into the army. Strike three, that should be it. And yet he works his way back, not consciously. He never changes being himself. He just follows what he's pointing. He wants to be free. And I made a film about a boxer who wanted to be free, Jack Johnson. But Jack Johnson was always for himself. Muhammad Ali was for everybody. And so when he says, I'm pretty, black is beautiful, he means you can feel that way too at a time when nobody would argue that black was beautiful. He was saying, look at who you are. That's part of the gift of the nation of Islam for all its violence, for its assassination of uh, their uh, uh, apostate uh, Malcolm X. They are saying we are enough. We can do it on our own. Who gave you that, that name, that slave name? Who, who calls you Negro is what Elijah Muhammad said. And he then began to mock it. It, yeah. it was it, it's an amazing transformation of a young man who's struggling in the face of Emmett Till's mutilated face, in the face of his father's frustration and having to look through the chain like fence. His father was an artist who uh, was quite talented, but was limited to painting signs, basically, yeah. because there was no market for Right. Uh, a black artist in Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, it's it's just the tragedy of Jim Crow. And we think of it in, in a kind of abstract way. Yes, so of course. But we don't think that it's, it's, it's in each black life, a million indignities. 
literally. I'm not making, I'm not saying a million as a hyperbolic number. It's a million indignities. First of all, let me say that if I were your consultant, I would give you high praise for bringing back the conversation to message again and again and again. And the message is the Ali film, which, <laughs> and I want to talk about, but since you bring this point up, you know, you were criticized or at least PBS was criticized because you are such a franchise there and you do so much work there. And you've told stories, not just of uh, white America, but of all of America, including black America. We've mentioned some of them. And there were black filmmakers and historians who said, hey, why does Ken Burns get all this work? What about the people who've authentically lived these stories and, and, and can tell these stories from that perspective? Did that sting? No, no, because the impulse was right. I mean, I, I think what they misunderstood is I get proportionally so much less money from PBS than other filmmakers might for their projects, particularly ones that might be on more difficult subjects. Um, so I get kind of cut loose. And, you know, in this year, uh, I have two films out on on uh, Ernest Hemingway and on Muhammad Ali, and their shared credits with other people. Our, our crews are enormously diverse and always have been uh, from the very beginning. And PBS has itself made the best effort of any location from the very beginning, 50 years since of its existence and more, uh, trying to represent all of the United States. My beat is American history. That's what I do. And I can't limit my interests or my inclinations. What I do is accept their desire to have more resources directed their way. PBS has done that. They've also asked of the rest of us producers, uh, and I'm an independent, you know, can we do more? And the answer is yes. I've tried to redirect with my funders uh, their interest in other uh, filmmakers. But I don't think at the end of the day, you could actually prescribe who could tell a story and who couldn't tell a story. I think that your film is is really deep and revealing and uh, honest about the things that Ali faced, the country he went through. And I know, by the way, that you, you know, you grew up with, uh, you've talked about, you grew up in the civil rights era and yeah. was, a, was a student of, of all that, but uh, were a student of all of that. But do you feel deficient in telling the story in any way for having not lived that, walked that path? No, I think what we are smart enough to do is to employ people either literally, you know, four of the five, uh, three of the four editors of the four episodes are um, African American. Um, the staff uh, is 43%, I think, in total of the nucleus of the staff. And I, I look back and at our, our late 90s work on, on jazz, the same thing. Uh, was true. You know, we're just, and, and the consultants are overwhelmingly uh, black uh, consultants. So, it, you know, a good story is a good story. I came across a quote the other day. One of my heroes had been canceled for apparent indiscretions about race with regard to blacks and Native Americans, John Muir, who is it. And then several black scholars came together and wrote a defense of him saying, you've just taken a snapshot from his early life. And this is what he said later. And clearly this shows an unbelievable evolution. But they cited a quote from um, Martin Luther King. I'd like to read just a little bit of it because it's so germane to your excellent question. All life is interrelated. All people are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am 
what I ought to be. And I think in the end, what the purpose of all of this work, this humanistic project of ours, is to find ourselves at a place which seems distant at this particular moment in time uh, from Dr. King's other idea that we ought to be judging on the content of character and not the color of the skin. And so as I do deep dives in American history, it is impossible to avoid race. We are founded on the idea of a guy who wrote a sentence that distilled a century of enlightenment thinking into one sentence, the second sentence of the declaration that begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And he owned hundreds of human beings and didn't see the contradiction or didn't see the hypocrisy. Now, I've done a film on Thomas Jefferson. Could I not do that because it intersects with that? I've done a film on baseball. Could I not then talk about the Negro Leagues and Jackie Robinson? No, we have to be telling each other's story and listening to each other's story, which is the hallmark of what we do. And more important, I think PBS is saying, having heard the passion in this recent cry, and I hear it too, which is we need to be encouraging everybody to be able to tell their stories. There should be no impediments for people. And I work as hard as anybody else still trying to raise the money, David. And I could walk out and go to a streaming service or a, or a premium channel and get all the money I need, but they'd never give me, they give me $30 million like that to do Vietnam, but they wouldn't, which took me, you know, eight years to raise. They would never give me 10 and a half years to do it or seven to Muhammad Ali. So I think what we're on the road to a place in which PBS is going to even up its game. Certainly the rest of us producers have committed to doing that. But I think at the end of the day, I don't think you can say that one person can't tell this type of story because of who they are. I want to ask you about two of your projects because uh, your your major opuses, uh, one on the Civil War and uh, the other on Vietnam, um, because you know, part your stories are so engaging, just incredibly engaging. Uh, but there's also uh, the question is, what do you take away from them about where we are today? And, um, you know, uh, obviously, the Civil War was a singular event. But some of the, the, the some of the the uh, kind of poison that was coursing through our uh, still uh, here society is still here. And uh, I'm wondering, as you think back to that work, you 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 did that well before the events of the last five years, oh, well yeah. bef- uh, before uh, you know uh, January sixth and the Black Lives Matter. It's all that uh, revolution. Yeah. So tell me, tell me what we should have learned from the Civil War that we didn't learn, and how do we stop repeating that you know that history? Mark Twain is supposed to say, have said, as you know, history doesn't repeat itself. And of yes. course, it never has. It never has repeated itself and it never will. And nothing is ever exactly the same. Um, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And so if you tell a, a story well in the past, you do not date yourself. It's evergreen in its storytelling, but it resonates completely in the present. And so, you know, the la- one of the last words of the Civil War series was the scholar Barbara Fields, a Columbia University historian, saying the Civil War is still going on and regrettably can still be lost. And that had renewed life at, at Charlottesville time. 
You know, this is all, I mean, the opening of our film after the introduction, we have a five or six minute introduction is a quote by Frederick Douglass talking about how beautiful America is, but his rapture is soon checked when he thinks about how the rivers bear the tears of his brethren to the sea and how the fertile fields drink daily of the blood of my outraged sisters. I'm filled with unutterable loathing. And so what you have, the original Black Lives Matter was Frederick Douglass and and Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and others who were speaking to us. Ecclesiastes says, what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. And that suggests that human nature doesn't change and human nature just superimposes itself over the seemingly random chaos of events. And we, we see the patterns, we see the themes, the resonances, the rhymes, the motifs. And, and that can be pessimistic, but I think it's also optimistic. We don't learn and things come back. I'm doing a film right now on the history of the U.S. and the Holocaust. And it may end with the photograph of the guy uh, saying Camp Auschwitz in the middle yeah. of the United States Capitol after a shot of the Confederate flag. Do you know what, the, you know what I learned from a scholar? What's on the back of his shirt, Camp Auschwitz, staff. This is a person willingly interested to be a mass murderer of Jews. You know, that's where we are. And if you go back to the United States in the 1930s and the anti-immigration stuff and the pro-Nazi thing, the German-American Bund and, uh, you know, Charles Lindbergh, this is some unbelievable scary shot. We had to actually date stamp some footage we have, color footage of a picnic in New Jersey with thousands of people who look like this is a picnic in Germany, right? In uniform and Nazi flags. And you're just, you go, what? Our job is to tell, you know, Richard Powers, you know, the novelist Richard Powers, he said this wonderful thing. I heard it from a friend a couple of years ago. He said, the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's mind. The only thing that can do that is a good story. So we're mm-hmm. just obligated to tell stories, to listen to stories of others, to hear what they have to say, to allow a diversity of voices. You know, even South Carolina, the birthplace of secession, the last, you know, people are going to hang on to it. They understand that their tourism is based not just on inviting people to, to relive, you know, Spanish moss and plantation life and, and the lost cause, but to realize this is a center of the slave trading. This is a place where African-Americans lived and, and for a time were the majority of that state. I mean, it's, they've understood that they've got a much broader. So to me, when people say, oh, you're taking down our monuments, you're limiting our history, you're going, no, you're not. We're just pulling it back and we're including lots of other people's history. And let us remember, since it's been in the news, that Robert E. Lee himself said, make no monuments to the Confederacy. It will only breed bitterness. And so as we watch that statue go away, all of those statues, by the way, put up after Reconstruction failed, during the time when white supremacy was being brutally reimposed in the old Confederacy in the Jim Crow Ku Klux Klan South. Um, That's the only reason why they're there. They weren't put up in 65. Am I right about this? Among those eight projects, and maybe you referenced this earlier, is a project on that reconstruction. Yes. Yeah. I I don't think, you know, it's even before that and well after. We definitely want to tell that story. It's so little known. And unfortunately, our, our popular culture is polluted with Gone with the Wind and Birth of a Nation, which suggest that the heroes are a homegrown Al Qaeda, a terrorist organization called the Ku Klux Klan. And the Confederate flag that people bandy about and argue about, that's not the Confederate 
Confederate flag. The flag of the Confederate States of America is a different thing. That is one flag, one battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia that was adopted by the Ku Klux Klan. That's what that flag is. It's not the flag of the Confederate States of America born in Montgomery, yeah. Alabama, and moved to, to Richmond, Virginia. So let's get our history right so that we can make informed judgments of which statue stays and which uh, statue goes. I'm glad you're doing that work because that may be the most tragic hinge in the history of this country, that period of Reconstruction and the failure of Reconstruction. Think how different our history would be. Yeah, well, just think about two, the election of 2000. Jeffrey Tubin wrote in a book that came out just after 9-11, unfortunately, that if you'd actually done a recount, Gore would have won Florida by a long time. Look what would happen. I mean, maybe Barack Obama would disappear, but you would have no war in Iraq, you know, maybe that he, warnings about Al Qaeda determined to strike U.S. might have been heated. I don't heated. I don't know whether that's the case or not. But we can we can presume a different thing. And all of that hinged on Florida electors, which is what happened in the election of 1876 when Samuel Tilden, the governor of New York, won the popular vote, but Rutherford B. Hayes won the vote because two Florida electors can't make this stuff up. It's history. Change their votes. The quid pro quo being that. If we switch and allow you Republicans once again to win the reconstruction, you pull out all federal troops from the South and reconstruction collapsed overnight. And those elected black officials in the U.S. Congress and the U.S. Senate disappeared. I mean, like Argentina disappeared overnight. That's a story that nobody's willing to tell. And then a few years later, Plessy versus Ferguson enshrines it all into law. It's just I mean, it's it's so complex. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Vietnam. You know, I thought about your series, and the the word Vietnam, which isn't spoken that often anymore, came up quite a bit yes. uh, at the end of, of our presence in Afghanistan and our withdrawal from Afghanistan to, after 20 years. What were your thoughts as someone who lived through the experience, of, as you said, 10 years making that, that, that series of, of films about uh, Vietnam, one big work? Should we have learned something from Vietnam? <laughs> that was applicable. Yeah, uh, we should have learned a lot of things all the time. You know, we've, we're in America, and I don't want to simplify it. We've been really good at finishing wars. We've been really lousy at starting them. And I think that um, we've often seen that the first option is war. I remember the first Gulf War. It happened a month before the Civil War series came out, and something like 85% of Americans were excited to go to war again. And, and you go, it, wow, I mean, our enthusiasm for blood was really up. And after the Civil War, that went down by a quarter, which I consider the best review I've ever had. War is all hell is what William Tecumseh Sherman said. And I think we have to remember, it's just no matter what decision you make, and maybe we should let mothers make these decisions, it, people are going to die. And old men are going to mostly make the decisions and young men and now women are going to die. And we ought to give mothers a big vote in that process. And, and, and we always sentimentalize them. Every war gets encrusted with the barnacles of sentimentality. Just a few years later, when we forget, like the World War II is called the good war. It's the worst war ever, David. 
the worst war. 60 million human beings were lives were extinguished. And where somehow this is the good war because the cause we was was clear. That tells you less about World War II than it does about the subsequent wars that were less clear. The thing that I was struck by in thinking about the Vietnam, Afghanistan, is the hubris involved in thinking that uh, we could essentially impose our will, impose our, our our values as much as as deeply as I believe in them, if the populace was not. And it goes before, it goes right before that too. It's also if you legitimately attack Afghanistan, which I think many reasonable yeah, we, people yes. think we had a right, but you take your foot off the accelerator when you don't get them at Tora Bora after two months and you're and in Iraq December, and you yeah. suddenly decide we're going to jump to another stream of investigation. This is a secular, stable dictatorship, but it's secular and stable. It's a balancing power and we're going to destabilize it. You know, Who's who yeah, in what yeah. imagination based on ginned up stuff, just like Vietnam, you know, the 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 yellow cake and, and the Gulf of Tonkin, there's similarities. So plus chance, history doesn't repeat itself, but the rhymes are just too well painful. well and, and and relative to Afghanistan, much as with Vietnam. We just saw these the Washington Post did an excellent series on papers that are now just becoming yep. public about the degree to which the futility of the mission was being obscured. So, yeah, there There's are the parallels. Momentum. You know, when, when, when Eisenhower warned about the military industrial complex at the end of his second term, he wasn't talking about something that had just started last Thursday. He's talking about something that began the second World War II was over. All of these people had made so much money in this war effort. Franklin Roosevelt, who was a traitor to his class, and he welcomed their hatred, he said, turned around and made them immense profits, and nobody wanted that to end. And so there is a, there's, a, there's a momentum of war because there's something deep in our psyche which we have to uh, investigate about who we are and the bloodlust that's in each and every one of us. But there's also an economic incentive to be at war and to be at war perpetually. And that's where we've gotten into so much trouble since the end of the Second World War. So talk to me a little bit more about Ali. I grew up as a, you know, we're, we're contemporaries and I was transfixed by him. Yeah. I'm no longer a boxing fan, partly because of what happened to Ali, having been debilitated by the pounding that he took over so many years. But he was beautiful to watch. The most beautiful athlete. Yeah, yeah, just so gorgeous. When he said, I'm pretty as a girl, he meant, and he was. I think if Michelangelo was alive today doing David, he'd go, mm, I think I'll do Ali. Yeah, well, and he and 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 just his his prowess, his his agility, you know, his elegance uh, was something. But as we started to talk about earlier, twenty two years old, he's a champion of the world, wins this upset victory, and declares himself a member of the nation of Islam. And a few years later, a couple of years later, he refuses induction into the military, and is is facing a jail term for doing that. How does this guy emerge as the figure who lit the torch at the 1996 Olympics and who, as you've mentioned earlier, you know, became sort of the quintessential American, you know, iconic figure in some ways? I mean, just beloved. Uh, how, how did that how did that happen? 
It's the second half of episode two, all of episode three, and all of episode four of our series. It happens because I think he never gave up. He never stopped being himself. He never stopped being for something bigger than himself. And people began to understand that. There's a wonderful um, uh, commentary by Robert Lipside, who was himself a cub reporter yeah. at the beginning of, of, of Ali's uh, career and followed him all the way through Cassius Clay's career. And we also have Dave Kindred and Jerry Eisenberg, two gray, uh, two other great sports writers. And, you know, Lipsight says, you know, Frazier won that first fight. This is the fight of the century in, in 1971. But in a way, Ali won America. That people, Vietnam, he beginning to realize he was right about Vietnam. But he'd also been courageous. And there he was losing on points. He knew he had to do something in the last round. And he got a little bit sloppy and he got decked by um, a Frazier and he gets right back up. And then at the end of that, he doesn't, in the post-fight um, commentary, he's not bragging or he's not sullen. He's not walking out. He said he begins to speak for everybody, that there's going to be failure in every life. And I have to represent the fact that people are going to lose a job. They're going to lose a loved one. They're going to lose a title. And we have to learn how we take it and move on. And what he's doing is he's processing in front of everybody. And I think for a while, as his biographer, Jonathan Icke said, that's the moment when his poster went up in my room. And all through then, it's the rehabilitation. When he wins back the title for the first time against uh, Foreman. Again, like the Liston fight, nobody yes. on earth expected that. It's one of the most amazing fights. Even if you don't like fights, there's a kind of you know, dramatic arc to almost five or 10 of them that you just can't believe. The first, uh, the first Liston, maybe the second, and it's a, 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 a weirdness, uh, but certainly the three Frasers and the Foreman fight and a couple of other beauties against Zora Foley and Big Cat Williams and Ernie Terrell, in which he's saying, say my name. Yeah, what's, yeah what's my name? Yeah. Well, yeah. Outspoken about calling him Cassius Clay years after everybody else's, most everybody else has come around to Muhammad Ali and he's saying, what my name? Say my name. What's my name? And it's it gives the title of our uh, second episode, what's my name? I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And I think after a while, people realized he, you know, I used the, I made a film on Jackie Robinson and I used to say to people, think about it. If you're a Brooklyn Dodger fan and a racist and Jackie comes up, what are you going to do? You can change teams, but Jackie's the harbinger of change in other teams too. And he was, or are you going to change sports? But Jackie Robinson's a harbinger of change that's going to happen across all the other sports. And many of the other sports said, Hey, we had black players even before Jackie came up. So what's no. the third choice? The third choice is you're going to change. And I think we, we, we actually, in the example of Muhammad Ali, lived up to something of our own promise in, 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 in letting go of the dialectic, of letting go of the hatred, of letting go of the divisiveness, which wasn't his. It was ours. He was bragging, and we think didn't think that was appropriate for a black athlete to do that. Strike one. He joined a religious cult. We're we have freedom of religion in this country. That's not his. It, it, it is not something he did wrong. It's something we did wrong in reaction to that. Strike two. He refused induction to the draft, which many other conscientious obje, uh, uh, objector groups, the Jehovah's Witness, had had done it. But that's this is a black man giving the middle finger to America. That's strike three. And so in a way, we had to unhate him, many of us. I, I didn't. I loved him from the beginning. Um, and we were against the war. So the final strike was our, you know, his sainthood by that time. But we had to unlearn ourselves. And that's really the process of being human. It's really not necessarily addition. It's about subtraction. Yeah. 
a point you made is so important to me when he made that decision not to be inducted. It, it's hard to say, well, he, he didn't have the physical courage to serve. I don't think, I think people understood that wasn't the And he would have had case. a cushy, he would have done USO shows and right. bow punched uh, guys at, 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 at right. places where they weren't being shelled. I mean, he knew that and he still didn't go. Sacrificed the prime three and a half years of his career. I would face a machine gun rather than go against my teachings. So we're treating this as political, and this is a faith-based decision by a sincere human being. And it just because he's a black man in America in the mid-60s, it gets it gets migrated over to politics. And you know, the prosecutor suggested X, and the judge threw the book at him and gave him the maximum sentence he could just to teach this, you know what, a lesson. It's just yeah. this is us still, and it's still going on. We were talking about this earlier before we started rolling about because it intrigued me. Malcolm X was a formative figure for the young Cassius Clay yes. as he became ushered him into the nation of Islam, was famously there the night that he beat yeah. Sonny Liston to become the, the heavyweight champion. And uh, and yet when Malcolm, and it, this was already underway, fell out of favor with the nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, Ali turned his back on him. Which was extraordinarily painful, yeah. and then and Malcolm X uh, in 1965 was then assassinated by the Nation well, of Islam. Right. Talk to me about that. It's it's so complicated, and I you know I, I think first of all this is a young kid who finds in the Nation of Islam for all of its cuckooness in many aspects a foundation to be able to have a worldview that allows him to outgrow the Jim Crow childhood and. Elijah Muhammad is a father figure. He meets somebody more contemporary to him, uh, the most charismatic of all the ministers in the Nation of Islam, uh, Malcolm X. Malcolm X, though, is much more political than Elijah Muhammad is. Elijah, Elijah Muhammad is about building community and about businesses that succeed on their own terms and separate. And, and, and Malcolm X is commenting on the world and wants to change the world. And so he's expelled for an intemperate remark he made about the death of JFK saying it was chickens coming home to roost. But that's really the attempt of the Nation of Islam to, and, and Elijah Muhammad's lieutenants to rid them of a, of a rival, they think, to Elijah Muhammad. So he's exiled. Malcolm, uh, Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, is, is where does he go? His father figure, his friend, and so he's ordered to cut him off, and he, he does that. But I think he's also got to know that the fruit of Islam, which are the enforcement groups, are a, a brutal aspect that he'd rather not consider. So I'm not letting him off the hook. It's one of the three things, the womanizing and the treatment of, of other Joe folks, Frazier, yeah. Jim Crow stuff, particularly Joe Frazier, that we hold his feet to the fire. But I think also he's a 22-year-old kid, 23-year-old kid, and I don't know where you go, and he's bestowed with this name. Almost simultaneously with the expulsion of, of, of um, Malcolm X, he gets this name. So suddenly he is somebody as Jesse Jackson would say, I yeah. am somebody. It gives him, it, it, it allows him, as I said, to escape the specific gravity of his slave name. And that's an important thing too for him. And so I think he goes along. He's very insensitive uh, in, in horrible comments when Malcolm X is killed, sort of saying he kind of deserved it. And I think later on though, the, the, the ecumenical version of Islam that Malcolm X was 
getting at the very last moments of his life that Wallace Muhammad, who took over for his father, had was always what what Muhammad Ali had and just didn't have the age and the wisdom to do it. So that by the end of his life, he's way closer to mainstream Islam and is this as I like to say, apostle or avatar of love that could be that, but knew at the end of his life that he had to atone. He said, I fit my religion um, to, to my habits. I treated women very badly, my wives very badly. I, I, I wasn't kind to Joe Frazier. He apologized. Frazier wouldn't accept it. And he also said, you know, I feel I really regret cutting off Malcolm X. He was right about so many things. I ran into Muhammad Ali once in my life, and it was late in his life, and I was walking through O'Hare Airport, and he was on a cart being taken to a plane, and people were cheering as he went by, and he'd stop and he'd hand them cards that he had signed, or with his signature, I don't know if he personally had signed it, but that was the implication. But what was so striking uh, was he was silent because he couldn't speak. Anymore, and how cruel for someone who was so garrulous. So it, it just it seemed, and yet but he you know was. What? There's a poetic justice in this. I mean, I remember Michael J. Fox, the great actor who also yes. has Parkinson's, said something to. I think it was at the end of the '90s that struck me as if it was a religious koan, a great gift. He said, "I couldn't be still until I couldn't be still," and I think that this most voluble of men, this great talker, speaker, spouter of poetry and, and brags and, and all of the sort of stuff that he did, provocative statements, he couldn't really speak until he couldn't speak. And then all of a sudden, by not being able to speak, he is beloved around the world. In O'Hare, I, I bumped into him in the late 90s in a coffee shop in LA, and I was sick and trying to raise money and was getting tea to to go. And I turned, it was after the breakfast rush and before the lunch. And I turned around and suddenly Muhammad Ali was in a booth. And I don't even know if there were other people with him, but he felt alone. And I looked at him and I had a wordless conversation. You know, I, I, I really said, you're Muhammad Ali. He said, yes. And I said, um, I won't bother you. And he said, you're not bothering me. And I said, I love you. And he said, I love you. And no words were exchanged. I can hear them, though, in my ears. And I walked out. We never broke gaze. It, you know how it is, how hard it is to look at somebody and the embarrassment of that. And we have to cut the gaze unless it's someone we know really well. I'd never met this man. I knew him. In t he knew me in the depth of my soul. And I walked out of there and I was like floating 10 feet off the ground. And not one uttered, heard word was expressed. Well, You've expressed that love in this work. It is really a profound profile of this really historic figure and uh, just another great story of the many that you've told. Ken Burns, always great to be with you. Axe, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. It's always great to have a conversation with you. I look down and it's been, you know, more than an hour or half a day or an entire day. And I uh, let, let's switch, switch the tables. Sometime I'll interview you. We'll do it. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 